Good morning. What a privilege to read God's word this morning as we worship him. We're in Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Revelations 3, 1 to 13. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. All right, good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. (laughs) Good. All right, that's fine. Just checking. All right, so uh, let's say someone, maybe you told me you're going to stand here on the half-court line, and you're going to face that way, and you're going to flip a ball over your shoulder while standing on one leg with a blindfold on, and and it's going to go right through the hoop over here. I might respond to you uh, something along the lines of, yeah, when pigs fly. Or I might say, yeah, you have a better chance of a cold day in July, right? No, 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 that goes right. And, and we, we would know what that means, right? We know we have these idioms. Actually, Zeno would be coming by the office tomorrow when you're in and say, what do you mean when you say when pigs fly? Because he's always trying to know these American idioms that, that we have. 
right? But we know that to say when pigs fly is basically to call something impossible. Uh, and in the ancient world, they had an idiom too for calling a task essentially impossible. Uh, and their idiom was conquering Sardis. Or if you were going to stand here and you were going to tell somebody you're going to make this shot backwards with one leg in the air or whatever, they might say, yeah, when Sardis falls. If you were to like go online and pull up Google pictures of you know, the ruins, the leftover places of Sardis, uh, you might see some ruins down in a valley, but then like in the back of the valley, you would see this, this mountain, this 1,500-foot-high mountain that just kind of shoots up out of the earth. It looks like a box because like three of its sides are just sheer cliffs. Which, and so you had some parts of the city that were down in the valley, but then up on the top of this mountain was where the, they built their Acropolis, or their fortified part of their city where the king and the important people lived or whatever. And because of these three sheer walls, 1,500 feet in the air, it was generally felt, thought that that was impregnable, that you couldn't conquer the city of Sardis just because of its sheer location. Except, you're... Uh, 546 BC or 456, I might have that backwards, uh, when King Cyrus actually did just that. Uh, the king of Sardis, his name was Cretius at the time, he did what kings back then would do from Sardis. They would go out, maybe start picking a fight or go to war with some other kings and territories. And if for whatever reason the battle started to turn or not look so good, no problem. They would just retreat up to their Acropolis, their fortified city, and they would just assume the other army would go away rather than assume they had any chance of conquering the city. And so they did this. He went out and he fought against the Persian king, Cyrus. It's going to be a quiz at the end, see if you remember all these names. And uh, sure enough, per, uh, Cyrus overtook King Cretius and his vaunted uh, cavalry. But instead of turning back home, he followed the folks from Sardis back to their mountain, and he laid siege at the bottom of the hill uh, to their town. And the thing is, Sardis had some very skilled climbers, apparently, in his army, and some of these climbers went ahead and took to these 1,500-foot cliffs, and sure enough, they then climbed over the walls in the city where some people weren't even bothering to figure they had to guard it or anything. They snuck into the city, opened up some gates in an unguarded territory. And sure enough, King, I'm getting it mixed up myself now, King Sardis, military came in, took the city, and Sardis fell. And everybody said, okay, well, sure enough, that's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. That would never happen again. Except, sure enough, 200 years later, I think it was now Antiochus III or fourth. I can't remember which one, came and did the same thing, laid siege to the city, had some skilled climbers, sent up a dozen of them up over the hills, up over an unguarded portion of the Acropolis. They opened the gates, the military came in, conquered the city. So, if you're living in Sardis during the time the book of Revelation is coming out, you know that generally you're operating out of a general position of strength, Yet you know, it's part of your city's history, that it is foolish to just assume, hey, we just have perfect strength all the time and we're no risk, no danger, no threat, or anything like that. Almost the exact opposite, if you lived in the city of Philadelphia, the second letter here, uh, literally no place in Philadelphia was safe. Not because their military was poor or weak or anything like that, because they were suffered from intense earthquakes. Probably for the past 70, 75 years before this 
letter was written to the church in Philadelphia, they'd suffered some devastating earthquakes. So, so devastating, uh, completely obliterated the town so much so that the Roman government had to come in and say, hey, look, for the next decade, you guys don't have to pay taxes or tributes. Just take that money and rebuild. You need it. And man, they were dealing with aftershocks from these earthquakes for so long. Actually, that a good number, if not the majority of the people, would actually move out of their house and live in tents out in fields because they didn't think that their house was safe. Because the next tremor might be the one that shakes the foundations loose, drops the house on top of them when they're sleeping at night. Okay, so all to say, as sort of like the introduction here, we've got these two letters from Christ to these churches in these cities, and the situation of the churches kind of reflects the situation of the towns that they're in. He's writing to one church that thinks they're strong, that their reputation is good, that they're secure and everything is fine, when actually they're in a very precarious situation. And he's writing to the other church that thinks they're utterly weak and has no strength, and yet he's telling them that they have unimaginable strength on account of Christ's presence with them. And so we're just going to kind of look through these two letters just to see what's going on here because there's some great reminders, great challenges, great warnings uh, for us as well this morning. All right, so let's talk it through. Uh, again, to the church in Sardis, he's saying, look, you've got this reputation for health, for being alive. Maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe they, good, they enjoyed good standing in the community around them. Maybe they enjoyed general peace and comfort, such that they thought the blessings of God clearly were upon them. And yet God says, you're in this perilous place. Actually, you're dead. You, you look like more like those tombs that are carved into the wall. There was a big necropolis on another hill just outside of town. You could see all these tombs and the caves and the hill. You look more like those caves. You are dead corpses. And so the question is, all right, what's the problem going on here in Sardis? And we're told three things. We're told uh, in verse 2 that their works are lacking. Uh, we're told in verse 4 that their garments are soiled and dirty. And we're told in, actually in verse 2 and 3 and some other places there that they've basically fallen asleep on the job. And so the command is to wake, wake up, rouse yourself, right? So all these things are kind of vague. It doesn't specifically clarify what's going on. But, okay, as we're working our way through these letters now, and we're getting to the end of these seven letters, we can start to make some pretty educated guesses as to what's happening. So, like, for instance, when he says, I know your works, and I know your works are lacking, well, we've heard Jesus commend some other churches for their works, and those works are described, like the church in Thyatira. I see your works of love, and faith, and service, faithful endurance. Right? Or he says to the church in Ephesus, uh, you know, you're doing a good job bearing up for my name, uh, but this I have against you, that you have forgotten the love for one another that you had at the beginning. So repent and do again the works that you had at the, at the first. Or in other words, there's a pretty good sense that when Jesus is referring to these works that are lacking, probably you've got a church here that's really not too engaged in acts of love and service towards one another. Or if there's poor people or sick people or those who are struggling with this, that, or whatever, maybe the general sentiment is, eh, not my problem. Or, uh, 
I see you, but man, my life is just swamped right now. I don't have much time, you know, for that or whatever. Okay, so that's going, what's going on in part. Their, their works are lacking. Then you got this whole soiled garments bit. What's happening there? Well, even there, we can probably make an educated guess, right? Because in all of the other letters, if you remember, if you've been paying attention and been awake the past couple weeks, <laughs> right? We've heard what are the, some of the works that Jesus is particularly against? It's the works of like the Nicolaitans or the works of this mysterious Jezebel and her children in Thyatira. Basically, the works of these people who are coming in and teaching and leading God's people saying, hey, look, it's basically it's okay if you want to flirt with, you know, some of the gods of the surrounding you know, culture, whatever. It's okay if you come today and you worship Jesus, but tomorrow you want to go and you want to worship Artemis, or you want to go the next day and worship Dionysius and engage in whatever practices they're engaged in. Right? It's okay if you want to do that. It's okay if you want to engage in some of the immoral practices that go on when worshipers gather at some of these other shrines and temples and things. And see, as we've been saying for the past couple of weeks, this is a problem. It's a big problem, actually. Because Jesus is very concerned to, to, to rescue a world that is drowning in worship of these false idols and these false and worthless gods. And his call upon the church is to be the ones who represent his glory over and against these other gods, or the ones who are going to be the kind of like the frontline mission agents who with their their lives or with their words or with how they conduct themselves represent the goodness and the glory of Christ, right? So if they're out there flirting with these other gods themselves and trusting themselves to these gods, having more confidence and hope in these gods, well, they're diminishing the glory of Christ and they're ruining their own witness. So probably, when he's saying your, your garments are soiled, Probably a symbolic reference to you had these once had these nice clean garments, maybe ones that Jesus gave to you, but as you've gone around and flirting and compromising with all these other gods and all these other practices, now your garments are all dirty. All right, so your works are lacking, your dar- your garments are dirty, and then three, you've kind of fallen asleep on the job. Which is probably a reference to okay, their works are lacking, they're compromising all over the place with pagan practices, and nobody's awake enough to even care. Or nobody's awake enough to be evaluating and asking difficult questions. Hey, uh, let's remind ourselves, what exactly is the truth of Jesus that was given to us, you know, in the beginning? And how are we straying from that in any way? Or, or what are the things that Jesus asks of us and he calls us to? And are we compromising something of that? Are we yielding any of that? Or, or asking the you know, taking the, the difficult evaluation of the self and taking stock and saying, hey, yeah, are there any other gods out there that I am flirting with and I am entrusting myself to, that I am finding my confidence and my security and my identity in? Or gods out there that I'm more tempted to bow down and, and trust? Or, or gods out there that maybe I'm just even compromising and flirting with because it grants me a little peace and security that I might otherwise lose if I'm out there claiming the name of Jesus. Right? Nobody's asking these questions. Nobody's doing the hard evaluative work. They've all fallen asleep. And so Jesus says, wake up, repent, do the works that you had. Otherwise, I'm going to come to you like a thief in the night. 
Otherwise, I'm going to come to you like those thieves used to in the dead of night when you least expect. I'm going to scale your walls and I'm going to take you out. So there you have it. That's his letter to the church in Sardis. <laughs> Nothing too uh, good or encouraging in there. Um, actually, I, th- I think the, le- the, the, the letter to Sardis serves as a, a somber warning to any church of a couple things. First of all, that this could actually happen. That you could have a church that gathers regularly for worship, comes to hear sermons, partake, partake in the Lord's Supper, maybe has a good standing in the community, maybe is enjoying general peace and prosperity in the life that they have, and yet they're utterly dead. Dead because they have no practical reliance upon the Holy Spirit to give them life. They're dead because they have no practical submission to the word that Jesus has given to the church about himself, about who he is, about what he's up to, about what he desires. They have no practical desire to, uh, to endure and to be faithful and to do the works that he calls them to, right? So it's a warning to us that that sort of thing can happen. You can have a fully functioning church that looks decent or whatever, and yet it's practically dead. Uh, it's a warning to uh, any church that Jesus doesn't take that lightly or doesn't tolerate that. Uh, that Jesus comes and says, hey, you're my representatives. You're the one who are called to testify to my glory and to give witness to that. And if you're not going to yield to me, if you're not going to submit and to honor me, I'll pull your lampstand. I'll come and I'll take you out. I actually don't know what happened, the history behind it, but if you go to the small town of Sart over in Turkey now, which is generally where that the old Sardis was, you might find 1,500, 2,000 people. Uh, but as of a couple of years ago, uh, no professed follower of Jesus Christ. No church. No lampstand. Again, I don't know how that happened, what happened along the way, but it certainly seems like God made good on his promise and pulled that lampstand. Right, so it's a somber warning that this can happen to a church. You'd be walking around as living corpses. Two, it's a somber warning that uh, Jesus takes that seriously and might pull that lampstand lest they give false testimony to him. I think it's also a good reminder for us that part of the business of being the church is that we, we regularly take stock and we do the difficult, you know, evaluation of our lives together, right? Are, are we faithfully clinging to Christ? Are we faithfully clinging to his spirit for, for our life? Right? Are we submitting ourselves to his word faithfully? Are we, you know, maybe using the word to, uh, to assess how we are living our life? Are we faithfully loving and caring and serving one another? Are we not compromising? Right? It's good for a church regularly to, a sense, stay awake, to assess take inventory, to take stock. Uh, and maybe here's where I'd put in a small plug for that season in the church calendar that is coming up in a week and a half. Right? In a week and a half, you're going to start seeing uh, McDonald's out there advertising their new McFish sandwiches that come out every this time of year, or pizza places are going to be doing great because you've got uh, you know all the Roman Catholics in the area who aren't going to eat meat on Fridays. Great time to sell, or except fish. Apparently, you can have fish, so you just have the McFish sandwiches. And anyway, but uh, you know, 
they may or may not know exactly why, why they're doing that. And actually, if you go back in the history of the church, it was the wisdom of, you know, some of the church fathers who said, you know, it, it would be good not only to just regularly be coming before the Lord, you know, in confession and repentance, but to take a season of the year where, yeah, we're really willing to sit in some of that more uncomfortable stuff of the things that are not right in our lives and to search that out, to bring it before the throne of mercy, to plead with him about those things, right? To take inventory and see maybe are there things in my heart that are not right? Are there things that I'm flirting with, playing with, that actually happen to be the very thing that caused Jesus in love to go and bear the agonies of the cross at the end of, at the end of that 40-day Lenten period, right, whatever. We'll talk about that more uh, next week as well, too, because the sermon leads itself uh, in, that, in that direction as well, too. But whatever the case, we, it's fundamental to our business to stay awake and to assess, are we compromising in any way that we shouldn't, okay? So there's your church, your letter to Sardis, Good reminders, strong warnings to us, what it means to be a faithful church. Again, to the church in Philadelphia, it's kind of a, an opposite situation. This is a church that viewed themselves as utterly weak, powerless, and ineffective. Small in number, probably not much more than a couple dozen people. Uh, they were persecuted for their faith because they held to the word of faithful endurance that Christ called them to. And uh, this is another community like Smyrna, where there is a sizable Jewish contingent, sizable Jewish contingent that hasn't had enough of these Christian folks. <laughs> so they want nothing to do with them, launching some slander campaigns, making slanderous accusations towards them. And the other thing they're doing that's uh, just significant is they're kicking them out of the synagogue, saying, no more association. You don't belong to us. We have nothing to do with you. And I did two things. One, that increased the pressure on this young church, right? Because for whatever reason, the Roman authorities had given to the Jew Judaism uh, sort of a an opt-out clause. Said, look, we recognize you only serve one God. You don't have to come to the shrines that we build to the emperor and burn incense or whatever. That's okay. We'll give you a pass. And the Christian church... Again, during that period of time in the early church where there was more of a close relationship with the Jewish community, uh, while they were uh, associated with that, they got that pass too. But as soon as you know, the Jewish community kicks them out of the synagogue, says, you have no part in us, we are not of you, whatever, now the pressure mounts. <laughs> now, if you're not going to go to the shrine and make incense to the emperor who has bailed us out of our economic woes and problems, by the way, well, then we got a problem here. And I think there's a spiritual element to this as well, too. Like, just imagine if, you know, you're a Jewish person committing your life to Jesus Christ, but you've grown up on Saturdays going to the synagogue with your brothers and sisters or whatever. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they say, no, get out of the synagogue. You're not welcome in the house of God, nor are you welcome a part of the people of God. You have no business in the house of God. You have no business in the people of God. And, you know, now you're being persecuted, slandered. That might shake you a little bit. That might lead you to ask some questions. I wonder, what am I doing here? And so it's to this beleaguered, depressed people, weak people, that Jesus comes and says, well, first of all, I am the Holy One, faithful and true, and I hold the key. 
of David. David in your Old Testament, you know, is the first true king of Israel. Uh, he's the first true king over God's people and his kingdom. And in fact, Jerusalem, the capital city, the place where God's temple was, where God uniquely dwelled in all the earth in the Old Testament, right? That would often be referred to as the city of David. And so Jesus comes to them and says, I hold the key to David, the key of David. And I open and no one closes. Or I close and no one opens. Uh, just before we, we moved here, it was about six years ago, uh, I, I had a, I had an old 1991 red Jeep Wrangler. I think it was a piece of junk. You could hear me coming a mile away and always tell people when they got into the, the, the Jeep to go for a ride with me, it's always an adventure because we don't know if we're going to get back to where we started from. But man, this thing was a whole lot of fun. And uh, we would ride throughout all the hills of Adams County with uh, the girls in the back seat, no top, no doors, seatbelts, which probably wouldn't have, well, anyway. <laughs> but um, and so we had a lot of fun. Had that Jeep for, for quite a few years. Rich, where's Rich? It was the ones with the old square headlights on it. They only made for like four or five years. It was great. Um, so we had a lot of fun. But, you know, towards the end there, and uh, <laughs> the problem with the Jeep is I... Well, I had a ton of problems, but the, the scariest problem is I could get underneath and I could literally see through the frame in multiple places. The, the rust had gone through it so much that there were just gaping holes in the frame. And the guy who had for the past couple of years been passing it with a kind of inspection-wise with a kind of, ah, okay, finally said, I just can't do it. This thing it could fold in half at any point in time. Uh, and so uh, just before we moved, there was a guy in the church there who said, you know, he was pretty handy with Jeeps. He said, or with vehicles. He said, yeah, I could swap out that frame and, you know, put it to good use. So we gave him the Jeep. And I still remember vividly handing over the keys. Tim often says, you wish I shed a tear a little more often around here. If I think about this long enough, you might see a tear start to come down my face. I can remember handing over the keys and knowing that in that moment of handing over the keys, it would never be for me again to open up the G Well, it didn't have doors. You just slid into it, whatever. But turn the key, start this thing up, and go around through the hills of Adams County. Or think about maybe if, if you've ever had to move and you, you had to sell your first home. You know, and you think about you're selling this home where you, you raised a family, where your kids, you know, grew up and played, where you worked blood, sweat, and tears to pay off the monthly mortgage on this place. And right, and you're sitting there at the settlement table, you're signing the papers, sliding the keys across the table. That's a somber moment because you know that in so doing, now this house is forever closed to you. You never get to go in and enjoy life there and eat around the table again or whatever. Like, I think this is in some ways some of or at least if you can feel that, that's some of what maybe this fledgling group of Christians would have been felt when they were kicked out of the synagogue and said, you have no business, no part anymore in the house of God. You have no business, no part anymore in the people of God. And so how encouraging would it be, again, instead for Jesus to come and say, yeah, I got the key. I got the key to the city of David. I got the key to my kingdom. I have the key to the new Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven, the pure and spotless bride. I got the key. I open the door, and no one closes it. And he goes on to say, and I open the door for you, and no one will close that door. 
He goes on later in the passage, I think in verse 10. Or sorry, in verse 12, where he says, and I'm going to make you a pillar in my temple. I will make you this immovable pillar in the temple of God, right? In the place where God dwells, where the place where God is present. I will make you this immovable structure so that no one will be able to take you out of the temple. No one will be able to take you out of this place where God dwells, and you'll never again go out of it. Which is partly a reference to the enduring nature of our participation in the house of God, but it's also a reference to that you know, whole instability of the houses in Philadelphia, right? People would go out of the house, sleep in tents out because they felt that the whole house was not safe. The next quake that came was going to collapse on the head. No, I'm going to make you a pillar in my house. You'll never again go out of it. He actually says to this weak church, he actually gives them three marks of their true strength. One, you're going to be a pillar. Uh, Two, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole earth to see, to test them, to see who it is and where their allegiances lie, right? There's this time of trial and testing that's coming upon the world and the communities that the churches in Philadelphia knew and lived a part of. And God, God says, I'm going to keep you from that trial. And if you ask me, it's debatable, but I think this is more of a spiritual keeping. Right? God doesn't seem to promise to any of the churches uh, the avoidance of physical affliction. All of them are suffering trial and tribulation. I actually think this is more in line with what Jesus prays for his church in John chapter 18, where he prays to the Father, look, I pray, that don't, don't take them out of the world and out of the trial and suffering, but keep them from the evil one. And I think that's the picture here. There's this trial that's coming that's going to test and shake people. And Satan would love nothing else than to use this trial to pull you away from the life and the worship and the witness that I am calling you to, yet I'm going to keep you. So I'm going to make you a pillar. I'm going to keep you. And I'm going to write the name of God and the name of his city on your forehead. Ah. Uh, this week, I forget what day it was, Monday or Tuesday, kind of crashed out early, not a whole lot going on at the house, pulled up Netflix, just to watch a little show or something before I went to bed. And there, first up in my recommendation queue, uh, was the movie Donnie Brasco, uh, which is this old movie, um, Al Pacino and Johnny Depp. It's, a, it's about this true story of a FBI informant who infiltrated the mob, uh, in New York City and, and significantly brought it down. Just happens to be kind of high on my favorites list, though I can't fully endorse it or anything like that. But so anyway, so I, I watched, I watched this movie and, you know, so I'm going around all week trying to talk like an Italian mobster at this point, like calling things fugazis and say, forget about it, you know, whatever. And there's this one scene in the movie where Al Pacino's character, the mob guy, is bringing this unknown informant to introduce him to the rest of the mob, Johnny Depp's character, and they come in, and everybody's saying, who's this guy? He says, oh, he's a friend of mine. You know, I keep walking further. Hey, Lefty, who, who's this guy you're bringing in here? Hey, he's a friend of mine. That's my Italian accent, a little Polish kid trying to talk. Anyway, but later on in the, in the, at the end of the day, then he comes back. Uh, the, he comes back and says, do you understand what I did for you today? He says, you don't understand what I did for you today. Forget about it. I just vouch for you today. And because I vouch for you today, and nobody can touch you right now. 
Sonny Red can't touch you. Sonny Black can't touch you. Nobody, and that's my Al Pacino impression. I can't do that. Nobody can touch you now because I vouched for you. And the thing is, if you read through the book of Revelation and you kind of keep going, that's the point of this getting this name on your forehead. That is, Jesus is writing the name of his God on their forehead and on their forehead, the name of his city. He's basically saying, ain't nobody can touch you. Your persecutors can't touch you. The Roman authorities can't touch you. Satan himself can't touch you. You are a pillar. I'm keeping you. You have the name of the living God. Nobody is going to touch you. Man. Can you imagine what, what encouragement that is to this young fledgling church? A couple dozen people looking at, you know, the strength and the might all around them in the synagogue and the Roman authorities wondering if they have any weakness, or wondering if they have any strength, wondering if they have any belonging in the house of God, wondering if they have any effectiveness for his kingdom at all. And Jesus says, you are stronger than you know, because you have kept my word of faithful endurance. I am going to keep you. I'm going to make you a pillar. And I'm going to write my name on you so that nobody can touch you. And of course, we understand, too, that the whole reason Jesus can write that name on them is because he's the one who, through his blood, has purchased them, And the one, because of his own faithful obedience, even to the point of death, and his resurrection and ascension, now stands at the right hand of the Father and intercedes and pleads to the Father on behalf of those he loved. Those people, they belong to me. They're mine. So keep them. What a great word of encouragement. So uh, basically, I think you 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 got warning and encouragement here. You've got reminders that here's what it means to be a faithful church is that we are always assessing, taking stock, making sure that we are holding fast to Christ, that we are not compromising our walk, our truth, our commitment to the works and the witness that he calls us to. Right, And it's also this wonderful reminder, too, that part of what it means to be a faithful church is that even though at times you might be terribly weak, that you are incredibly strong because of the presence of Christ. That even in times where individually or corporately as a church, we just feel overwhelmed in weakness for whatever reason, and this wonderful reminder that we are the strongest thing on the planet, not because of ourselves or anything that we have indigenous in ourselves, but because of Christ and his presence with us. I know there's several people here uh, overwhelmed in weakness these days. Maybe because you are, have been given a task, a responsibility, you've been sent in kingdom uh, mission, and the task is greater than you, and it's sucking the life out of you. And at times it's depressing because you're having to perform this task in a broken and a hostile world, and you're not seeing a whole lot of fruit. Man, the invitation for you this morning is to see this Jesus who identifies himself to the church in Sardis as the one who holds the seven stars and the sevenfold spirit. The one who sovereignly orchestrates the affairs of history according to his purpose. And the one who administers the fullness of the Holy Spirit, who alone gives life, basically saying to you, hey, yes, you're my servant, I've called you, I've sent you, but remember, I'm the one who accomplishes the work. I'm the one who alone brings and sustains life. So just look to me. You have more strength than you realize. 
Lord, I know there's some of you who are overwhelmed with weakness, more because of the, the mental and the emotional battles that you fight day in and day out. You may be trying your best to cling to Christ, and yet your mind replays scenes of failure and shame over and over and over. Or you're crushed with waves of grief and sadness time and time again. Or your mind just brings up more and more thoughts of anxiety, or just maybe more and more depressive thoughts, or whatever it is. Man, the invitation for you this morning is not to buy the general worldly wisdom that tries to say, no, you are worth it, you are great, and look at how, you know, whatever, and just think more better of yourself. No, the invitation for you this morning is to see, see and savor the glory of Jesus. This Jesus who, you know, see the picture of Jesus in chapter 1 with his white hair and his eyes of fire and his royal robes and his feet of burnished bronze, his face that is shining on you with the radiance of the sun and full force. This Jesus who suffered and died, but now is the ever-living one who has defeated the power of death so that he could wrestle the keys of death and Hades away from the rulers and authorities and the principalities, the forces of evil. And remember, you know, as in all these letters, they're bookended by a glorious vision of Jesus. And then at the end of each letter, Jesus promised to share all that glory with you, right? So he has conquered the power of death. He has wrestled away the keys from death and Hades so that he might lead you into his resurrection life to the full. Some of you are struggling in weakness, just actual literal physical weakness, and you wonder of what, maybe of what value or what service you can give to the kingdom. Or maybe you're, you're struggling with spiritual weakness, whatever that may be, Man, just look to this Jesus who says, I, I, I am the one who holds the key to the city of God. I'm one that holds the key to the kingdom. I'm one who holds the key to all that God has in store for you. I open it and no one takes it from you. I open a door for mission purposes or whatever and I lead you through it and nobody can withhold that from you. Nobody can touch you now because you have my seal on you. Even to you who maybe are struggling in weakness because you're overwhelmed by your own sinfulness. And you're just mindful of how, maybe this over this past week, you failed again in areas of righteousness that you've been, you've been working at and you've been praying for. And yet you trip up again and again. Man, even to you, I want to say, yes, we, we should regularly take stock and right, and we should be concerned about those things and be trying to make those right. But the first order of business for that is to see and to savor the glory of Christ, who first laid down his life for you and your sinfulness, who first suffered your punishment and your death on your, on your behalf so that he might lead you into life. And man, when you see that, that is what begins to give you the confidence and the strength to hold fast. Last thing I want to say along these lines, I'm speaking a lot individually here, but I, I'm also reminded that this is what we're supposed to do together. Together, we are to remind one another, call one another to see and to savor the glory of Jesus Christ and let that lead us in strength. I was reminded of that this week. Uh, I guess it was Friday morning. I went over to just pray with Vince over at Chester, Hospital before, Chester County Hospital before his, uh, his surgery. 
Figuring I'd just go in there, share a passage of scripture, pray with him, just try to be of some kind of encouragement before he goes in. And as often, pretty much every time, as it always happens, even before I can start sharing anything or saying anything, uh, you know, Vince just goes off on that pastor. I want to tell you, I'm just at peace. And let me tell you why I'm at peace. And he goes through a long laundry list of all the ways God has proven himself faithful to him over the years. Whether it was arresting his life however many years ago and setting him on a totally different direction in life. Or whether it's the ways, the, the myriad of ways God has proved himself faithful to him and Suzanne in times of trial and difficulty. Or even all the way up into the present and sharing, man, there's this guy who I worked with years ago that I've been praying for for decades. Who finally calls me up out of the blue and says, hey Vince, I want to let you know I gave my life to Jesus the other day. Right. And so at the end of the day, okay, Vince, well, let me read Psalm 139 for you and pray for you here. Thanks. And, and I walk out of there more fixed on the glory of Jesus in difficult circumstances, more excited to go at my day now with Christ at the center, trying to make some sort of impact for his kingdom, more committed to his faithfulness and his strength, on my behalf. And it's just a great reminder to me that as I'm preaching that, to remember that this is what we're called to do together. To remind one another that the king that we serve is glorious and mighty, and even though we at times are overwhelmed in weakness for whatever reason, yet our king is powerful, and he is merciful, and he is faithful to us. And as we dwell on that, as we see that and savor that, man, that's the stuff that causes springs of strength to well up in our own hearts giving us the desire to make sure we're not compromising, not doing, bowing down to other worthless gods who never have that kind of strength and never have that mercy and commitment and faithfulness to us. That's the kind of stuff that will lead us to faithfully endure, to stay at the mission he calls us to. And man, that's the stuff that as we are led in strength to do that, man, the watching world will see that and delight in it. In other words, if you're overwhelmed with weakness this morning, you have one of two options. You can dwell on that weakness, or maybe you can dwell on some kind of contrive, contrive strength in the face of that weakness, or you can be like Paul and boast in your weakness, because in that weakness, maybe the glory of Christ will be manifest in your life. And maybe the glory of Christ will not only be manifest in your life, but through your life, so that through your weakness, others will see the glory of King Jesus and be all too willing to submit their lives in faith to him. So may God be pleased to do that in us and through us for his great name's sake and for the advance of his kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.